Do consumers think that privacy is dead, barely breathing, or still alive? The answer to this question is many-layered and much more complex than you can imagine. Welcome to The Power of Digital Policy, a show that helps digital marketers, online communications directors, and others throughout the organization balance out risks and opportunities created by using digital channels. Here's your host, Christina Podner. Life before May 25th, 2018 seems simple, but since GDPR, CCPA, and other data privacy laws came into effect, we've been talking about privacy and data collection in the context of design and especially user experience. To continue this conversation today, we have with us Jonathan Joseph. Jonathan is the head of solution and marketing at Catch, a platform for programmatic privacy, governance, and security. He's passionate about innovation, focusing his career on disruptive technology and organizational change. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming by to geek out a bit here on uh, privacy, thoughts on design, and uh, definitely lending us your marketing lens. Welcome. Hey, Christina. Thanks for having me. I appreciate having me on your podcast. Jonathan, what is Privacy UX and what is its purpose? Is basically the first thing a consumer sees when it comes to privacy. It's the mechanism which you collect consent. And you know, consent is such a funny word, but what we mean by that is permission, really the permission to do what you want to do with people's data, process it, collect it. And so Privacy UX is really that first line of where a consumer can understand what you're doing with data. It's the first place where they can actually give you a sense of what they let you do with their data. And this whole idea that consumers own their data is important. So actually, Hawaii recently was talking about enshrining this right to data privacy in their constitution, right? Actually calling people's data privacy property. <laughs> and so that to give you an idea of how important this is, you started your intro, Christina, talking about, you know, where are we? Is it dead? Is it whatever? The, the consumer is very much now a very important motivator, more than compliance, I would say, as, as people think about privacy. And that's why marketing and marketing's involvement in privacy projects is so important. How weird do you think consumers are. We talk a lot about CCPA, GDPR, lots of different acronyms that most people can't remember. But how aware is the everyday consumer? Yeah, it's, it's a really great question. So they're absolutely aware. Here's the thing. We actually did, did do a study on this. If your listeners are, are into it, we can send the link to this. But we did a study across the UK and the US, 5,000 people. They may not know the specific legislation. They're not going to know the acronyms, CCPA, and maybe GDPR because it's been around longer. But what they do know and what they do see is the privacy UX, and they do see the regulatory actions, right? So, so they see the FTC enforcement. They see enforcement of GDPR. They see some of these data breach cases. So privacy is very much front and center for consumers and for people, even though they may not know the acronyms. And so one of, one of the questions we asked in our study was how highly do you value your privacy? And we also asked how highly do you value sustainability and how highly do you value diversity and inclusion? And the reason we asked about those is because they typically are the values that brands like to share with consumers, right? They, they like to say, hey, we care about these issues as well. And what was interesting about it is, you know, about half the world said I highly value sustainability. And half the world sort of highly value diversity and inclusion. But for data privacy, it was 75%. 
And so not to say that it's more important than those other two issues, it just seems to have a broader appeal. And we've wondered why people answered that way. And, and I think data privacy is just such a deeply personal thing, but also to, to your question on awareness, they're out there and they're thinking about it. So what do marketing teams need to be thinking about right now in terms of privacy and this consumer awareness? Well, firstly, I, I don't think marketing teams are showing up enough in privacy projects. Some of the data on that and talking to Forrester about this, two years ago, something like two years ago, 5% of privacy projects had marketing involved. This year, it's something like 15%. So it's, it's on the way up. But 15% is nothing compared to how important this is as a brand issue. And so I think what marketing teams need to do is firstly show up um, and show up in the context of, of privacy UX, show up in the context of articulating the value around privacy, sh sharing it as a brand value idea, like you do, by the way, with sustainability and diversity and inclusion. You, you show up caring about the environment, you show up caring about diversity I think what's important there is you can't just maintain, you know, a Hollywood facade of, of caring about these things. You actually need to do something about it. You can't say you care about the environment and not reconfigure your supply chains. And in a similar way, you, know, you can't say you care about diversity, but, but not hire that way uh, in, in your recruitment programs. And for data privacy, it's the same. If you're saying, I care about data privacy and you're transparent about what you're doing with data and you give consumers control over their data, you need to make sure that when they make a choice, it gets reflected across your systems. And so what we're seeing, and we like to say privacy is a team sport, it's not just a legal thing. It became a tech and IT thing. And now I think it needs to start to become a marketing thing. And between marketing and IT and legal, you figure out privacy and you figure it out in a way where it's more than just I'm ticking the box on compliance. It's doing this to build brand value. I'm doing this to build a relationship with my consumers. I'm doing this to rethink my data strategy, you know, which is important for marketers. You've worked a lot in this space. Do you have a favorite project involving Privacy UX that you can talk to us about just so we can understand a little bit more what that looked like and what did you learn from it? Yeah, it's funny. I think there's some principles that, that the folks that are building Privacy UX need to think about. One of those is transparency, just being super clear about what you're doing with data, why you're doing it. We don't give people enough credit in terms of how much they understand the value exchange with brands and that you know, data is kind of a currency for that. But what we found in that study is that actually people understand that, hey, oh yeah, of course, I understand my data is the currency in this relationship between me and you. And as I share that data, I know I get benefits in return. I know I get product recommendations. I know I get personalization. I know maybe I get discounts or whatever the case may be. Consumers get that and they've always understood that. They've understood that all the way back to the soap opera, right? When, when, when those big consumer goods companies would sponsor these soap operas, the idea was we give you this delightful content and in return, you're going to watch a few ads. And so there was this social contract, if you will. And that hasn't changed. And I think consumers have always understood that. But brands, to some extent, went on a wild west of collecting as much data as they could, storing it for as long as they, they can. And, and those days have gone. So 
principles like transparency, principles around responsible data use, I think are critical to privacy UX projects. You know, some of the, the other principles in addition to transparency are have an adequate and appropriate retention policy when you collect data. So use the data for as long as you need it. Don't just store it indefinitely. Be transparent about how you're sharing data. And then the other thing is like, you know, collect and use data that's appropriate for the thing you're doing. You know, in, in legal terms, they call that data minimization. And marketers like to think of it as data relevancy. Here are the data points I need. And just ensuring you're kind of you know, restricting or, or really thinking about the data that matters for a specific purpose. Like those projects matter for me a lot. Sometimes in privacy UX, you can get stuck in, well, what does it look like and what color is it and what position on the page, on the web page, does the privacy UX show up? And, and I, I think those things move the decimal point. <laughs> but the big change comes to really engaging with consumers and articulating the value of privacy and then actually doing something about it. That, that I feel, really moves the needle. I'm happy to hear you say that. One of the things that I've been bothered by lately is I used to see a lot of websites saying, hey, give us your email address, we'll give you 10% off. Now it's like, hey, give us your email address for 10% off or $10 off. And then the moment you enter your email address, give us your phone number so we can text you. And I tend to wonder how many people give up their phone number and then immediately opt out of the text messaging. Do you still think we're seeing sort of a spray and pray kind of model out there? Or is this just sort of really marketers trying to get closer to me and understand me more? I think they're trying to get closer to you and understand you more. But I, I think what's driving it is there's different types of data. And I think your, your listeners will know it's there's first party data, second party, third party data. First party data is when I collect directly from, from consumers. Second party data is the else's first party where I've kind of merged to get a fuller understanding with the buyer journey or audience overlap or whatever you need to do. Third party data it, it comes from inferences and comes from, you know, folks like looking at what you're doing across the web. And essentially cookies have driven third party data to a great extent and they're going away. So I think what you're seeing, Christina, is this realization that this big piece of the data strategy around third party cookies is going away. And so I need to replace that with something. And the thing I replace it with is first party data and this direct relationship with the consumer and the way that manifests is your email address, your phone number. I look like I experience it at a personal level. Every time I fill out a form, I mean, I've got a fake number that I give out because I'm like, why do you need to text me about this? Like my email is fine. I don't need you texting me. And the times that I have received texts, and this is especially in the context of like political contributions. You just immediately regret it when you see the volume of texts that you get. And then it doesn't stop and it starts coming from different numbers. Anyway, I could go on about this forever, but it's like, it's a fresh, it's almost like an immediate erosion of trust when you blow up people's phone like that, you know? So I think marketers need to be super careful about it. It's, it's not just about, okay, great. I can have this relationship with my consumer and I need their email address. Like, you, I don't know if rational is the right word, but you've got to be almost reasonable in what you do after that because consumers do now are super sensitive to that, right? Like how many spam calls we get and whatnot. So I think that's, that should be part of the equation. It's actually one of, one of the reasons why we're seeing a big convergence between privacy portals and marketing preference centers. 
So this idea of consumer control, you know, mandated by privacy and laws maybe, but now, you know, we're seeing a lot of clients saying, well, I, I want to ask more than, I want to ask questions to my consumer that are more than privacy. I want to ask how often do you want to be communicated to? Which channels do you prefer? What would you like to be communicated about? And I think that's a really important step to giving the consumer a little credit. So back up for a moment. What is a privacy portal? Do we all need one? Yeah. So you define need. In some cases, you need one because it's basically a legal obligation. You have to have consent, the right permissions, and they could be opt-in, opt-out. It could be just the fact that you're delivering a disclosure on you're dealing with data. So if you're running analytics, if you're doing targeted advertising, um, in most states where there's data privacy law, you need a portal where people can come in and change their preferences. So you need one. But the case I'm, I'm trying to make is you also want one, whether you're legally mandated or not, because of what we were saying earlier, this is an important issue for consumers. So I, I would say, yeah, absolutely, you need one. And you know, to add to that, it's merging with this idea of marketing preferences and communication and kind of what you want to hear about. Is that something that organizations need to start introducing to consumers or is it something that can just appear? I'm wondering how do digital teams or how do even marketing teams introduce the concept of a privacy portal? Do they need to? Do consumers just expect this to appear? Do we have to have like a journey that we take people through in terms of education? What does that look like? I think there is, I think there is a plug into the journey. So over the last however many years, marketers have really put a lot of effort into this perfectly curated digital journey for consumers. The website is carefully considered, the colors, the graph, and the, the journey people take, the content that they see is all very carefully considered. And then we said, I'm going to slam this cookie banner up. <laughs> In the midst of this carefully curated journey, and so I always thought that was crazy. It's like this legally mandated thing that you just got to put up. It's just like, hey, I don't care about it. I'm just going to put this weird step in there. And so I think people need to, marketers need to think about how to integrate privacy into their carefully curated digital journeys already. And so the look and feel of the you know, privacy portal, you can think of it as there's a module that comes up when people first show up to your website. And that's where you, you have the opportunity to say, we care about your, your privacy. We're transparent about what we're doing. We're giving you choice in how we're using that data, what we're collecting, what we're doing with it. And then of course, you know, that goes away. People start to engage with your website. But to maintain that, there should be a place that they come to, and this would be the privacy portal, where they can come back and change those preferences if they need to. And if you do a good job of that, you can collect more data and build this relationship with your consumer because they'll come back and say, you know, I like what this brand is doing. So now, yes, they can have my phone number. <laughs> yes, they can reach out to me about these other things. And I think that's the idea, that if you carefully curate the privacy journey, in addition to, you know, your digital journey, then, the, then you build that relationship with the consumer. You get better data. They trust you more. As a consumer, Jonathan, you're making my heart go pitter-patter. That's exactly what I want. I want a relationship with a brand. I want to trust them. I want to be on this lovely journey. And then I put on my consultant hat. And one of the things that I hear oftentimes is, but we need to push things to mirrors. We need to get them to convert. We need higher conversion rates. So it's almost like pounce on them all the more. 
there's a tension there. There's a dichotomy there. How are you getting organizations to take just a quick breath and pause and say, no, really, the way that you've described this is the way to go. It's building the trust, getting consumers to engage with you, have that relationship, and they will buy. If they're anything like me, they will buy, but maybe not on, on their time. First is there's spray and pray. And spray and pray has worked because you could annoy a thousand people and two of them might say, okay, I was actually interested in that. And it works. <laughs> and when it works, you say, well, let me spray and pray on another thousand people. And then there's this idea of like, how do we get more specific about who's actually into this product and how do I get more targeted? But for me, the holy grail is how do you move to more of a pool model? You know, so for me, like the dream is where consumers just tell like, you like, here's what I want from you. Can you pull it down? And, you know, for the most part, they say that 80% of your revenue comes from people you know already. So you should be able to kind of build that motion where they pull down with, and you just give them the content that they need, give them the context, give them the kind of whatever. But at the same time, you do have to build new, a mechanism for new, for new customer growth. But, but I think there's a better way to do that than spray and pray. How do you see that working across channels? Because as we've been talking, I've been thinking about websites and portals and sort of more of the web world. Does privacy UX differ across channels? Like if we're talking about website versus mobile apps, even virtual reality and some of the new frontier technologies, or is it consistent across the board? What does that look like from a organizational perspective as well as consumer's perspective? I think that the important piece is how do you connect all of the channels? So what's the multi-channel experience? So what I mean by that, this is going to be a big theme in 2023, this idea of privacy and identity. It comes up in some of the laws, specifically in the California law. This idea that if somebody opts out on a website and then they show up on your mobile app, if you know that that's the same person, then you should reflect those choices when they're in the mobile experience. And so the idea is, if somebody makes a choice on one device, because you know, the part that's been difficult with some of these data privacy laws is that they talk about people and they talk about honoring the data privacy rights of people, but we don't show up as people on the web. We show up as a collection of devices. I show up as my mobile advertising ID. I show up as my email address. I show up as a cookie, right? And I show up as all these different things, but the collection of those is basically me. I shouldn't have to consent to processing on each one of my devices. At some level, I want you to know it's me. And I've said, if I've said no on a mobile device and I jump on your website, you should know it's me and just don't ask me again, right? There's such a thing as consent fatigue. So I think that's what's important here that yes, there's different experiences, but what's important is to be able to connect those, reduce consent fatigue, treat people like people, not like devices. Now, however, on the new frontier technologies, I think it, it raises a different set of problems or challenges. So for example, in virtual reality and, and some of the thinking that's happening around the metaverse, I mean, they can track your eye movements, all right? Not creepy at crazy. all. Not creepy at all. Not creepy at all. And I'm like, it, it kind of reminds me of, remember Clockwork Orange and the guys like forced to watch TV and he's got his eyes open. With, with, yeah. So that, now we're starting to talk about do you really need that? 
And, and where do we draw the line on some of these analytics or some of the biometrics that you're collecting? And there's a real need for this privacy experience to morph into some kind of ethical guidelines and frameworks. And, and we're not there yet in the world, but I mean, you saw it, you saw Microsoft kind of shelve some of its you know, facial recognition work and, and basically came out and said, we shelved this because we're not sure how to really think about the ethics around this and we need to do, and the world needs to do some work on that. So I think around the new frontier technologies, absolutely, that's something we need to think about. What are the ethics or what we're collecting? And how do we remove bias and all that? You mentioned uh, privacy and identity is going to be a hot topic in 2023. You've been out in the world talking to different folks at different conferences, doing a lot of speaking. What other things do you think are on the table for digital operations teams or even marketers in 23? What should everybody be thinking about? It's the data strategy. For sure. How do we rethink our data strategy in the context of some of these privacy laws? It's how do we rethink our data strategy in the context of the consumer and their awareness of data privacy and its importance and the shared value? I think that's a real opportunity for marketers. You're looking at regulators who think or and are openly out there saying that what you're doing in digital marketing advertising is surveillance capitalism. Out there openly saying that. And as much as we disagree with that, maybe there's some atonement that needs to happen because we did have a kind of a wild west of data collection and use and would deliver a programmatic ad in milliseconds. <laughs> and so the infrastructure to do all that, actually pretty impressive, but through a regulator's eyes, that's surveillance capitalism waiting to draw the line. I don't think it's that far gone. <laughs> I don't think it's surveillance capitalism, obviously. I think there's a middle ground where you can respect people's data dignity and you can participate in a data-driven economy. And so that achieving that balance, I think, is what's, what's important. It's not all surveillance capitalism. Consumers totally get it. They understand the value exchange. They understand that there's value in sharing data brands. And if brands can do that responsibly, I think that's going to be a big thing for this year. I was just at the IAB conference in Florida and... It was basically a privacy conference. It was basically folks asking about privacy. How do we do this? What are the ways we think about it? How do we engage with consumers around this? It was such a hot topic. And it has implications for data strategy. It has implications for UX. So I think that's going to be a really big thing this year. And we've got most of the US state laws are becoming enforceable in 2023. So you can't ignore that. And just all throughout the year, California, Virginia, Utah, Colorado, January, July, December, there's, you know, different layers of enforcement kind of coming, coming here that people need to consider. I had the privilege last week of talking with a group of folks that are on a digital operations team, and I asked them why they were collecting so much data on users. Just for the sake of it, I'd gone in and signed up for something on their website, and they asked for my first name, my last name, my zip code, my email address my physical mailing address, my date of birth. And all I wanted to do was actually download like the equivalent of a checklist for caring for the elderly. So nothing really like exciting or sexier that I could probably even just like find this without exchanging my personal data for it, to be honest with you. But I was like, okay, why are you collecting this much information? And what was fascinating to me is that the head of UX was in the room and I looked at him and I said, you know why? And he's like, I can't tell anyone anything. Like there, other people are driving this boat. 
I'm wondering how do we actually get the voice of UX experts in this privacy conversation to be louder? People who are really closest to the consumer. And from your experience, how do we set them up for success to help us really achieve success and engagement and building that trust relationship with the user? Yeah, such a great question, Christina. When privacy was just a legal issue, <laughs> I think some of the attitudes toward it were, okay, how much money do I need to throw at this thing so that I can have some kind of minimal level of compliance and check the box? And then kind of since then, what we hear a lot is legal teams saying to us, I need to do a whole lot more in privacy. For example, one of the big trends now in Europe is in the mid-market, GDPR has been around for a long time. Now teams are looking at, well, actually, how do I optimize my privacy program? I need some level of automation. In the US, given that there's five state laws in 2023, others are coming, folks are saying, this isn't a manual process. <laughs> this is something I need to approach programmatically. And so they're asking for optimization. So what's happened is legal teams have said, I can partner with IT and tech teams a, it gets me what I want, B, it actually gets me more budget. And so in a similar way, by inviting marketing and UX teams, it gets you what you want and it also unlocks budget. So in that study that I mentioned that we did, one of the key findings was that if you do data privacy right, if you have responsible data practices, and we wanted to quantify what that meant, rather than, hey, consumers care about privacy, good things will happen. The good things that will happen is we found that it will drive 23% more purchase intent. And purchase intent, as you know, is a visually important marketing KPI. And so 23%, how does that translate to revenue? Depending on what type of company you are, durable goods, long sales cycle, short sales cycle, 30 to 75% of that translates to revenue. So we're looking at 5% revenue growth at a minimum if you get responsible data practices right. And when we showed that slide, first time we showed it, we showed it actually to a group of lawyers who just wanted to understand how marketing could think about privacy. And they were taking photos of the slide. And I remember asking, why are we taking photos of the slide? And they said, well, I think it's going to help me get budget. Because now I can introduce the marketing team and say, hey, you care about this, right? You care about building fan value. You care about revenue and growth. And if I can handle the risk mitigation side of things, and our tech team can handle the collapsing cost of compliance side of things and get us automated processes for privacy. And marketing teams can use this as a growth driver. Doesn't that sound like a great mix where kind of collectively we can get this budget for everything we want to do and elevate privacy to this board level issue, which is starting to become more and more, especially in the context of Sephora. Like who wants to be on the front page? talking about front page of the newspaper, talking about this stuff, you know, so it's become a big reputational thing. So that's what I would suggest, like kind of roll through and be involved in these privacy projects, find privacy council. I bet you your privacy council will thank you for finding them and being so engaged in this as a marketer. I'm taking notes on that exact recipe. It's actually a perfect recipe and it's probably the most succinct I've heard anybody deliver it. So thank you for that. I just made it up now, so... You might want to patent so. it before we go and release this <laughs> th this episode. But no, it I'm is great. Through. Thanks. 
I'll re-listen to the podcast, make sure I've got it all right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. We'll experiment. You just mentioned, or you said a few minutes ago, GDPR has been around for a while and it's hard to believe five years is almost where we're at. It seems like such a long time. How do you see privacy evolving in the U.S., especially in the next five years? What are some of the trends? Because of the complexity in U.S. laws across different states, and all the states are different in some annoying little way, you have to automate privacy in order to apply. You have to stay flexible in your systems. And so one of the big trends we're seeing is towards automation. And so my theory is that the U.S. will start to drive a lot of that technical innovation because they have this complexity state by state. And so what we're seeing is that in the U.S., I think we've always been, we've always leaned towards what's a programmatic solution for this? How do I take out the manual processes? And my experience with Europe is they're actually very much focused on a lot more of the legal. What are the compliance checks? How do I think about cross-border transfers? How do I, how do I think of, you know, when, when UK or European citizen data is stored in US cloud providers, like they, they think through those legal issues. They have Max Schrems and other, let's call them privacy agitators, right? In a positive way. So they're thinking through those legal issues. But because the US had to deal with state by state and really think through technical innovation there to address that, that's now going back to Europe where they're saying, yeah, we should optimize our stuff as well and make our privacy programs more efficient, more automated. So I think that's an interesting trend, kind of regional difference. Um, so maybe that's what, one way to answer your question. I'm excited for that thought. The role that's going through my head is, I don't know if you ever watch I Love Lucy, right? But there's that episode where Ethel and Lucy are at the chocolate factory and more and more candy's coming out and they're trying to box it and it's going too fast. And so Lucy starts eating the chocolate and Ethel says, I think we're losing at this game. So it's like, it's not just about figuring out the automation. It's also getting the automation right. So it's probably a combination of the EU and the US and everything coming full circle to make us all more privacy aware and get us onto this hopefully happy path that you're talking about of really thinking about around privacy and, and getting that part right. The chocolates are just coming down the conveyor belt here and the chocolates are all these different state laws. And then so people are like, I can't keep eating this guy. Is there one platform as a way to do it? And unfortunately, there isn't going to be a federal law in the U.S. that bails you out of this. It, do, it just like politically, the chances for it to happen are almost zero. And most people have said our best shot was federal law that got drafted last year. So you, you have to get bailed out. You, you have to find an automated solution. There you go, folks. You heard it from Jonathan. He's been right so far on many different topics. I think he's right on this one, too. That's where I'm citing, but... We'll come back in five years, Jonathan, revisit your forecast and see how right we were or how right you were, but I'll sign my name under that one too and, and revisit this. But for now, it's a pleasure having you with us today. Appreciate the insights and the talk. And if you wouldn't mind sharing your report with us, I think it would be very well received. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for saying that. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining The Power of Digital Policy. To sign up for our newsletter, get access to policy checklists, detailed information on policies, and other helpful resources, head over to thepowerofdigitalpolicy.com. If you get a moment, please leave a review on iTunes to help your digital colleagues find out about the podcast.